so I think I know pretty much all of you, but I'm uh, Rachel Felker. I work here at the church uh, with the 20s and 30s age group. Um, so it's just such a joy to have you all here with me. And um, a couple years ago, I got real involved here in a group called Living Waters. Uh, and truly one of the highlights of being there was getting to hear Janine speak Um, So each season she would come and share with us and um, I would just go home very moved. So um, she's a a very powerful, wonderful lady. So a little background on her. She's a Christian counselor who has a master's degree in nursing from Houston Baptist University, as well as a master of arts and counseling ministry from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. She was on staff at North Suburban Evangelical Free Church in Deerfield, Illinois for seven years as the director of their care and counseling ministry before moving here to Atlanta. Janine helps our congregational care department by offering short-term solution-focused counseling for our members as well as those who attend Apostles. So here we go. Here's Janine. Well, you know, there's still evidently some people that are out there roaming around trying to get here. So we're going to start with uh, some questions to kind of let you guys, I mean, you've been talking now for like a half hour. But I really wanted to give you a chance just to get to know each other. But I wanted you to start in a special way. I wanted you to say, hi, my name is blank. I am, and I am, and I am. Um, All these are just three words that you would use to describe yourself. So first that, and then just a short discussion time about What do you feel is the most important factor that contributes to your self-image and why? Okay, so take like five minutes and then I'm going to interrupt you and you'll know when it's time to start because there's going to be a video, okay? (laughs) So have fun. And this is going to be really challenging. Hi, my name is Janine Dungan. I'm a mother. I'm a Christian counselor. I'm a child of God. Whatever. Go for it. Have fun. Guys, I'm sorry if you didn't all get a chance to talk or if you didn't finish, but I think we need to begin. Enjoy the video. Who am I? Am I what I do? An artist? An accountant? A teacher? A mother? Or am I what I've achieved? An honor student, an MVP, a winner. Am I the things I've done right? Or am I defined by the things I've done wrong? Am I a saint? A sinner? What about what others think of me? Am I all of these things? None of these things? Who am I? How I identify myself determines how I approach life. If I am what I do, I'll always need to do more and achieve more to find my value. If I am what others say, I'll always try to please people instead of my Heavenly Father. But if I listen to who God says I am and embrace His identity in me, I'll find the freedom to live out all He has planned for me. God calls me His child. He says I am wise and restored, that I'm a brand new creation in Christ. I am chosen and holy and blameless before God. He calls me His masterpiece. I am loved by God. He says I am made complete through the grace and mercy of Jesus, my Savior. And when I see myself the way God sees me, I walk with confidence because I trust the one who answers the question, who am I? Done. (laughs) I thought that was a great video because it was like it said everything that I'm going to say only precisely. Um, But today we're going to be talking about identity in Christ and why it's so, so important. Our personal identity is how we see ourselves. How we see ourselves shapes our core beliefs about ourselves, which in turn drives what we think, what we do, what we say, how we act in relationships. Now, you may not realize it, but it says in Christ. In Christ, those words, 170 times in the New Testament. That's a lot, not to mention all the others that are like it. Um, 
it is honestly our single most valuable yet least understood treasure here on earth, this identity in Christ. And until it becomes prominent in our thinking, we remain stuck really in the devil's just just grasp, you know? Um, because it's his main temptation. It was his first temptation, it was his main temptation. And you may not think about this a lot because a lot of people don't talk about it, but you know what he said to Eve? He said, uh, Eve, you can be like God. Hmm. You don't have to be identified by God and defined by God. You can build your own self-identity. All temptation is honestly an unrealistic illusion that we can be something or somebody other than what God meant us to be. And that it'll be good for us. What a lie. Let's not fall for that anymore. Because what it does is it gets us preoccupied with self instead of God. And so we remain stuck in this impossible struggle to create ourselves instead of resting in the reality of who we are in Christ. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, come and reveal truth and point to Christ. Convict our hearts of worldly influences and beliefs that hold us captive and keep us focused on ourselves. Draw us into the freedom of Christ, abundant life freedom, freedom from the tyranny of ourselves so that we can love God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and spirits and love our neighbor as ourselves. Father in heaven, hasten us into Christ where we belong. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So, you know, squirrels are born knowing how to be squirrels. They know what they should do. They know when to build nests. They know when to gather nuts for winter. They just know. But you know, not so with us. Children are born not knowing who they are. And it, it's like you're born with a mirror. And your whole body's like a mirror. And this mirror we hold up to the world around us. And we're looking in the mirror. We're looking in the mirror trying to see who we are. Trying to see ourselves in that mirror. In, in a reflection from these other people in our lives. And what you see in that mirror begins to be your self-image, the mental picture that you have of yourself. Our definition of ourselves is formed by when we hold this mirror up to people or messages, and it's our self-image is made by the voices we listen to. So everybody who comes through life has this worldly or fleshly image of themselves because we've grown up in the world. We've grown up in the world. And when we hold up our mirror to the fallen world, the image that we see of ourselves is a distorted image, right? Like funhouse mirror, a false representation, or at least not an accurate representation. But everyone can have a true image of themselves by holding their mirror up to the truth, to the word of God. Jesus said, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love truth recognize what I say is true. Because God is absolute truth, we can believe what he says and we can live accordingly. So our goal is to see ourselves as as God sees us in Christ. Instead of, you know, putting stock in the messages that we receive from fallen people or a fallen world around us and its ruler, the accuser of our soul, Satan, let's just start with knowing that that is not our goal. Our goal is to be seen in Christ. And so first let's look at worldly image and consider how people and culture affect our image. So consider with me. First of all, people. The primary understanding of who we are is established really early in life. Um, as we hold our mirror up to our parents, our siblings, our grandparents, our teachers, friends, good and bad, um, to the degree that you feel heard, affirmed, blessed, safe, 
touched, chosen, included as a child by these people, by these primary people in your life, you'll feel acceptable to yourself and confident in this worldly image, in this worldly identity. When children who idealize, and we all do, our mothers and fathers, when they don't experience unconditional love and they don't experience these feelings of being heard, affirmed, blessed, safe, touched, chosen, and included, um, we assume that the problem lies with us. We never think it lies with them. So we are constantly, subconsciously, scanning our environments, the reaction of these important people in our lives whose opinions really matter to understand who we are. Sometimes the messages are loud, abuse, neglect, love, but sometimes they're um, very much more subtle, very much more subtle. You know, my mom was always busy, and the message was that I wasn't worth her time. My father favored my brother, and the message was that boys are more valuable than girls. Then a teacher took interest in me, and I was applauded for competence, and the message was, you are what you accomplish. So you see what I'm saying? These messages happen. And even as adults, we continue to scan the reaction of the people of influence around us, and they can make or break us, and I know you felt it. We all feel it. Did you ever see an elephant being held down by a real little chain, like a bicycle chain? Have you ever seen this? And I don't, some of you, I mean, you know, I just heard that there's not going to be any more elephants in circuses. Did you hear this? Yeah. But I've seen elephants in circuses, and they're sitting here with, they're big elephants, strong and powerful, but they have this little bitty chain around their ankle, and it holds them. And it's not the chain, obviously, that's holding them. It's the elephant's memory that keeps them from trying to escape. Because when the elephants are very, very young, when they're very, very little, and they didn't have any strength to break these chains, they would be chained, and they would learn that the chain was stronger than the elephant was. And so they never tried to break it again. You know, I see so many people in my office who are chained to their false core beliefs this false identity, this identity that has been developed over the years. And I heard a quote once that really rang true for me that is always constantly moving around in my head. And it it goes like this. The worst thing in the world is watching someone drown and not being able to convince them that they could save themselves by just standing up. So let's talk for a minute then about another issue, which is culture. Oh, my goodness. Hello. This is a self-esteem culture, guys. And do you know that the term self-esteem only became popular in the 1960s? Now it's a household term. Schools have entire curriculums based on the so-called importance of thinking highly about yourself. The basic teaching in pop psychology today is that people in general have a low self-image, a low self-esteem, a low self-worth. They do not love themselves. They do not accept themselves the way they are. They lack self-confidence, and so they behave poorly. Sexual promiscuity, suicide, crime, abortion, depression, poor mental health, addictions, stress, unhappiness, lack of success in life, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all the results of poor self-image, right? We hear these messages all the time. And what's the cure for these problems? High self-image. Build your self-esteem. Learn how to love yourselves. Really? (laughs) Then why is there no mention of self-esteem in the Bible? Scripture said our problem is pride, not low self-esteem. The words arrogance, proud, haughty, are mentioned 200 times in the Bible. Self-esteem, uh-uh. Let me describe pride just a second. Pride is a destination. 
a destination that says, look at me, look at me. Now there's two roads to this destination. Two roads to this self-absorption, self-obsession, selfishness. High self-esteem and self-hatred, low self-esteem. Both of them get to the same destination. Because pride in either form lead to self-absorption and to usurping God's right to control our lives. And also it dulls our desire for God. It's as simple as that. And we just don't need to love ourselves more. We need to think about ourselves less and love God more. Self-image advocates claim that um, Matthew 22, 20, 39, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and I'm sure you've all heard this, means that we need to learn to love ourselves first before we can begin to love others. In other words, there's really three commands here. Love God, love yourself, love others, right? It's a false interpretation of the Bible. In the very next line, Jesus says, um, on these two commandments depends the whole law. On these two commandments. And if Jesus says there's two commandments, how dare we claim that there's three there? There is, however, one place in Scripture that self-love is mentioned. One place. 2 Timothy 3.2. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Self-esteem is not the ticket, ladies. The Bible always assumes we love ourselves. So when Jesus calls his disciples to deny themselves, take up his yoke and his cross, he's revealing something very, very important. Our joy, our peace is found in him, not in self. Deny yourself. Take up this yoke. Take up this cross. And you will find the fruits of the Spirit, which are love and joy and peace. He's calling us to a self-giving love and a, not a self-satisfying love. So I want you to understand that the Bible's pattern for love is very, very specific. We love him because he first loves us. That's 1 John four nineteen. So God loves us first, which enables us to love him back, and that begins to express itself in love for others, this love relationship with us and God. Like the love relationship between God the Father and God the Son begins to experience itself in love for us. So the focus of the Bible is always love comes downward, love goes upward, love goes outward, never inward. We let God love us and it flows out of us, and that's how we receive and dwell in love. <coughs> so I want to warn you that a worldly self-image is, it's hard to correct, honestly. It really is. Because it filters out all the positive messages from God and other people. I have had people sit across from me, and I'll say, what about this that the Bible says? God loves you. And he, they'll say, well, he loves people. Not me, because of the things I do, or what I've been through, or, or, or. It's very difficult um, to change our opinions of ourselves, because somewhere inside, we have made a decision about ourselves. And that decision has to be changed if we are to alter our self-image. We have to decide that this is false, that it is not truth, that it is based on holding our mirrors up to a fallen world, and we have to decide that we want to have a true image of ourselves and will not believe that anymore. That we are not going to be defined by our feelings. We're not going to be defined by the opinions of other people or by our circumstances. We're not going to be defined by our successes or our failures. We're not going to be defined by the cars we drive or the money that we have or the house that we have, we are meant to be defined by God, by God alone, 
He created you, He created me, and He knows who we are, and He alone defines us. Colossians 2, 6 says, So then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that nobody, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily forms, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. We have to be very careful of the messages that we believe. So in Christ, in Christ, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So, you know, a butterfly isn't a caterpillar with wings. It's a totally new being. It's got a new identity. The caterpillar was known for crawling around on the ground with its many feet and eating leaves. But the butterfly is known for being able to fly on wings of beauty, drinking nectar from flowers. The old being is gone, and so is its identity. The caterpillar has no part in this change process. Its creator did it all. And so the butterfly can never be a caterpillar again. It can't go backwards. Because God did away with the old creation to make the new creation. And so it is with us. Every person who's changed by being, from being out of Christ dead to being in Christ alive is instantly garmented in the righteousness of Christ and with a new capacity to make choices to be righteous. But then again, we have to learn to practically apply this new being. So think of it in terms of like an athlete who gets taken into a uh, very prestigious football group, I don't know, and he he puts on this uniform, right? And he's on the team. But it's something else to play up to the reputation of that team. And so I think that's kind of this concept that we are and yet we are growing to, into this image of Christ. So, you know, it says that when we were formerly in darkness and impurity and futility, Christ has recreated us in righteousness and holiness and truth. But that doesn't mean that we're always going to be righteous and holy and truthful. <laughs> um, no, but the old things are passing away, they're fading away, and the new man is coming forth stronger each day. But I want you to realize that in God's eyes, on account of Christ's work on the cross, he looks at Christ covering you like a new perfect garment. He doesn't see us with our old filthy rags and who we were. He sees us in Christ. And this new creation is a wondrous thing, formed in the mind of Christ and created by his power and his glory. So how should we think of ourselves? What is this concept of sober judgment that the Bible talks about? And I think it's to recognize both our human wretchedness and our human greatness. And that balance is the key to humility and and freedom, really. Um, High self-esteem, pride, refuses to acknowledge our wretchedness, right? But the low self-esteem, pride, refuses to acknowledge our greatness. And so this balance, I think, is very important. The way we continuously talk about our inabilities is honestly an insult to our creator. Every time that we say to ourselves, I'm not pretty enough, or I'm not smart enough, or I'm not skinny enough, or I'm not successful enough, or I can't do this, or I shouldn't do that, we're denying that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, which it says in Psalm 139. We're, you know, kind of disapproving of the creator himself and his ability to make something beautiful 
out of absolutely nothing. You look at some of these trees that are blooming. He made those beautiful trees out of absolutely nothing. Ex hilo, out of nothing. He can bring beauty out of ashes, it says in Isaiah 61. So God always loves us, but we don't always receive his love because we're so focused on who we are or who we're not. And God's perfect love is not based on our perfection, anything but it's based on himself and the fact that God is love, as it says in 1 John 4, 8. If we accept our true unique self, and I want to say that word unique self because in my mind, and I, I say this all the time in my office, every single one of us is a container for the same beautiful light of God. But it shi- his light shines through us in each unique way. And it's beautiful. And, and it, to me, this is something that excites God. This is, this is his, like, I don't know, what he really loves, what makes life exciting for him is like, oh, look how my light shines through her, and look how my light shines through her, and look how my light shines through her. Isn't it beautiful in her? Isn't it beautiful in her? Isn't it beautiful in her? And, you know, I, I really, I know that this is, that this is true. I, I sense it in my deepest being. So we have to accept this true, unique self, you know? The good, the bad, the ugly. Because if we don't, we will forever be trying to hold up this false identity that we want everybody to see, and it's so exhausting. We will forever be comparing ourselves to others and realizing that we come up short. We will never really develop into the person that God created each of us to be, which is really the goal. No one else in the world is like any one of us. And our prayer can just be as simple as, God, I don't want to be like anybody else. I just want to be all of myself that you created me to be so that I can glorify you. And so I would define humility by 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. How simple. I am what I am. And his grace was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So the humility and meekness that God loves is simply the acceptance of ourselves. We don't need to prove ourselves. We're not worrying about how other people see ourselves. We are offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to the one who counts we are realizing that he can take whatever that living sacrifice is and he can multiply it and he can use it to feed a multitude. We know that God shines brightest when we're the most transparent. And so it's really about not paying attention to ourselves as much as it is just entrusting ourselves to the God who is going to shine this amazing light through us and not really worrying what he does, just accepting it one day at a time. And I think once we accept that we're uniquely made in his image, that we're loved, that we're accepted for who we are, that we're forgiven, we are set free from preoccupation and from self-concern to concern for God and others. So let's be just grateful for our ability and, and trust God with our inadequacies and accept ourselves with humility and thankfulness, saying, you know, God, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not yet what I was created to be, but by your grace, I'm not what I used to be, <laughs> and I'm not what I'm going to be because I believe and am confident in this that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, as it says in Philippians 1.6. So how do we move from a worldly view of ourselves to seeing ourselves from God's perspective? I'll give you a few ideas. The first thing is, you know, I have this vision of two 500-piece puzzles 
<laughs> and the box tops, you know, that tell you what the puzzles are supposed to look like, get switched. Can you imagine how frustrating and impossible it would be to put a 500-piece puzzle together if you think it should look like the wrong picture? I don't think that would be very easy. And I don't think we'd ever get it put together. We have a picture of what we think we should look like from our past, from our worldly identity. Um, hmm. But the word of God holds our true picture. And that's the picture we have to go by. And once we get a good look at that picture, we'll begin working at setting together all the pieces of our lives to make up the correct image of who we are. So the design appears in, in God's word. We have to read his word. We have to be in it. Until we are, we keep trying to do for ourselves what God has already done for us. We keep trying to build our own identity. And our goal is to worship God for all he's done and to rest in his finished work. So we need to hear repeatedly the wonderful identity and position we have in Christ. That's one of the reasons that I gave you this, this handout. I hope you use it. The first page here, it tells you who you are in Christ and it tells you how to use it. But for now, I just want to read a scripture reading to you. One of my favorites about being in Christ and it's, let's just agree that this is the truest thing about ourselves because the Bible says, and I'm going to read to you from Ephesians 1 and 2, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his good pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. In him we also are chosen. And you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this not from yourself. It's a gift of God not by works that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that beautiful? In, in Christ. Wow, how rich. So, God sees you, like it says on your handout. So please take time, and if you have to read this every day until it gets into your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. Read it every day until it gets into your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. And I, the other one that you have here, I'm not going to go over it too much, but I want you to know how important this is, our identity in Christ. Because it talks about three things that we need. Our identity in Christ, you know, Let's see, it's uh, 2 Peter 3.1 says that we have everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus, right? This is why. This is why. Because our identity in Christ gives us everything we need to live an emotionally healthy life. Belonging, worth, and competence. And in belonging, we have a sense of security and identity with those we love, 
and accept us and support us. Those who love us, accept us, and support us, we have a sense of, of belonging, identity, security with them. In Christ, we are expected by the Christian, um, we are accepted in a Christian family, right? We're all here. We love each other. We have a strong family identity. We enjoy our time together. In that same family, we enjoy loving discipline. We enjoy growth, teaching, um, growing up in the way we should go. And I, I guess what's really important is that we are wanted and we are loved for who we are, worths and all. <laughs> in worth, we have a sense of personal value. We're heard, cherished, valued, respected. We count. We were bought at a great price, which you're going to hear me talk about a little bit later. Incompetence, we're affirmed as able people. Uh, we are capable by the Holy Spirit and his power to accomplish God's will for us on earth. They say, you know, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. And we can say, with Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power at work in us. By the Holy Spirit, we have competence and we can trust in that, and we can rest in it. That part of the handout, wherever I have it, that part of the handout, tells you that we can have a firm foundation, and it's not built on us making our self-esteem. It is built on the truth and the reality of life. So a few more things I'd love you to really do. I would like you to make a commitment right now that you will let go of a critical spirit towards yourself. There is nothing more daunting and difficult because it keeps you in the grasp of the devil. Self-rejection, self-hatred, unforgiveness of self, shame, feeling ugly, stupid, condemned, condemning yourself. I love conviction. <laughs> Conviction's the work of the Holy Spirit. But conviction comes from within your very being, and you'll know the difference between conviction and condemnation because condemnation is this voice that's outside of yourself, that's talking into your spirit. And this real being that God has put in you, the real self that we're talking about, this critical voice makes it wilt and run away and hide. That is a very bad thing. That is God, the devil's just, he loves this. Because as long as he can keep you shrunk up, you, you're not going to have a relationship with God that is pleasing and honoring and allows God to transform you and grow you and be powerful in you. So I'm telling you and I'm asking you to make this decision. No more condemnation. No more critical voice. If you hear that critical voice has to have something, you define it, you call it out, you say you are not true and start living the truth. And if you can't do that by yourself, come see me. <laughs> the next thing I'd say is please make peace with your past. Grieve, forgive, let go. One of my favorite passages, I love this, it's Psalm 45, starting in the 10th verse. Listen, daughter, pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is the Lord. To paraphrase that, break off your worldly self-image. Break with all of the associations and beliefs and the relationships that separate you from your identity in Christ. Throw away the idols that have bolstered you up with your worldly self-esteem so that you can give them your whole heart. There's nothing glorious in the old man. It's the caterpillar crawling around the ground, eating leaves. But the new man, glorious in everything, the butterfly flying and drinking nectar from beautiful flowers. And you know, you don't have to concentrate on techniques or gimmicks 
Just concentrate on Jesus Christ. Walk with him, abide in him. There's no shortcuts to that, except just this constant exposure to the glory of God in you know what you're doing here, in reading the word of God, in learning from him and identifying with his friends, in prayer, etc., etc. Um, because those are the places that the Spirit of God can really get in and start to transform us from one level of glory to the next toward Christ-likeness and toward discovering our real identity. And I, I say that because this is really important. I want you to think about Peter. So, John one forty-two. God, Jesus says to Peter, he says, okay, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, Peter, meaning the rock. Now, when you continue to read through the next chapters, you realize that really Peter was anything but a rock at that time, anything but a rock. He was aware of his own sinfulness. He had an impetuous character that often spoke out of turn. He, uh, he was boasting that he would die for Christ, and what happens one second later? He denies him three times. But when Jesus looks at Peter, he doesn't see what he is then. He sees what he will become if he's willing to let Christ manage his life his way. So Jesus gives Simon a new identity, Peter the rock, and then he sets out to work on him to produce the character that's in line with the identity he's already given him. I think this is really important. I don't, I don't think we always realize that when God says we're his masterpiece, that means that he's creating us. Some artist creates a masterpiece, and he is creating us. He is creating a masterpiece if we will lean into his creative beauty. So your identity, a great treasure, precious beyond our wildest imagination, is being kept for you by the great custodian of our souls. And as we commit our lives and get to know Jesus, we begin to explore and find out who we really are. When we look at him, we see a reflection of us and we start to know us. And as we get secure in his love, it gives us the confidence to surrender and to truly be ourselves. And then as he's just continuing to work, he reveals our, our gifts, our talents, and then he'll begin to use them because we will uniquely um, reveal God's glory and, and reveal God to the world. And that's his plan for us. So trust God with your life, all of your todays, each and every one day at a time. Always going to be an amazing journey with him. And the Bible is so full of men and women who began thinking that, you know what, I really don't think I have a good (laughs) self-image. Moses. When the Lord appears to him in the burning bush, Moses formulates a series of questions and objections, and finally he admits the root of his fear. You know, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to me. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And how does God respond to Moses? Hmm. Does he lavish compliments on him and say, oh, wait, you have to have a higher self-esteem, Moses? Uh, no. He doesn't point out all his positive qualities. Oh, but you're such a nice guy. So that they would overpower the negative? No. Instead, he just points to himself. And he says, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them mute or deaf? He who gives sight and makes them blind. Is it not I? Hmm, interesting. And then he says, now go. I will help you speak. And I will teach you what to say. I'll help you. That's really all we need, guys the promise that the Lord will help us and he will be with us and we will be whatever he chooses us to be. And it will please him, it will reveal him, and it will honor the world and bring glory to God. So, same thing with Gideon, right? You know, God tells Gideon to go and save the people of Israel and of course he he says, pardon me, Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And again, God's answer is the same. 
hey, don't worry, Gideon. It's okay to be weak and small. You have good qualities too. No, he didn't say that. He said, I'll be with you. What a wonderful promise. It's all we need. You know what? Saints are never really consciously saints. They're just very dependent on God. So little, ordinary you and I, weak, unspectacular, our life has been written in God's history book. And if we seek him with all our heart, the story of our lives will have meaning, be beautiful, full of strength, full of grace. So when I was really wanting to understand my real identity and to get over some of my um, issues from the past. I started to pray for several years to understand God's love for me. And somewhere at the end of a couple years, honestly, it was a couple years I prayed the same prayer. I, this is a pattern in my life. I'll pray the same prayer until I get it. You should see how long I prayed for humility, and I'm still working on it. But um, one day in the middle of the night, God woke me up with something I had heard years before, and it changed my life. So I want to tell you it. A friend of mine who is, um, she's actually from Syria, and she told me this, and I had just totally forgotten it, but when God woke me up with it, it was like bold, and it it changed my life like that. So there is a, um, there's an oasis their caravans come from Syria down to Egypt. There was an oasis in the Sinai Desert where the caravans would stop, spend a week, replenish their camels, and, you know, revive themselves with actual water. <laughs> and, um, and so there was an oasis owner, and he had two daughters. And the elder daughter was cross-eyed and um, just not very good-looking, There was nothing really pleasant about her. And he had a younger daughter who was beautiful in every way. And she was the apple of her her dad's eye. And so, and this is very significant for me because my dad was never nothing. So that's one of the reasons that this was used, I know, in my life. But um, so the... The younger daughter did no work, but every night when these caravans were there and they would all be eating together, she would dance for the caravan owners. And the older daughter did all the work. She was like the slave. So one large caravan came through, and the caravan stopped and um, replenished themselves, and after a week or so, the caravan owner came to the father, and said, I'd like to offer you 40 camels for your daughter. And he's, I mean, that was like, a girl was worth, you know, a goat. (laughs) And this guy offered 40 camels. And he's like, whoa. (laughs) And he says, well, of course you can have my daughter, but I also have an older daughter, and it's custom to marry her first. Will you take both of them for the 40 camels? And the caravan owner said, but I'm offering you 40 camels for your older daughter. And the father was speechless, but through her. (laughs) So years pass. A big caravan comes in, beautiful carriage. The oasis owner is bowing down, looks up, and the most beautiful woman he's ever seen is there. And she says, Father, get up. And he said, who are you? And she said, I'm your eldest daughter. And the moral of the story is, you're worth what you're paid for. And she was a 40 camel woman. The one who bought us with a price knows our true worth. The price he paid for you and me is Jesus. If you ever had a price tag on you, it would read Jesus. You're worth Jesus' death on the cross to the triune God because that's what he paid for you. Romans 5.8 says, um, 
God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the statement of your value. And God's view of you and your worth is the true one. Trust it. Live it. It'll set you free from the tyranny of self. It'll allow you to develop the beauty of the true you. It will deliver you to the love and the joy and the peace of resting in Christ. A world-renowned theologian was asked by a student what he considered the most significant theological truth he had ever learned. And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Regardless of your past, Jesus loves you. Regardless of your experience, Jesus loves you. Regardless of what your parents thought of you, Jesus loves you. Regardless of your failures, Jesus loves you. Regardless of your disappointments, Jesus loves you. He's always loved you. His love for you is unconditional. I would really just like you to soak in that reality because what a difference it'll make if you just soak it in. Let it get inside of you. Let it start to flow within you. God is love. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He really does. Drip the living water of God's love and let it soak in. Let me pray for you from Ephesians 3. This is what I prayed for myself for those two years. Starting in the 16th verse. I pray that out of the riches, the glorious riches, his glory, ah, it's a tears, can't see. Start over. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.